Chapter 5 of The Book of the Damned. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Andrew Coleman. The Book of the Damned by Charles Fort. Chapter 5. I shall attempt not much of correlation of dates. A mathematic-minded positivist, with his delusion that in an intermediate state twice two are four, whereas if we accept continuity, we cannot accept that there are anywhere two things to start with, would search our data for periodicities. It is so obvious to me that the mathematic or the regular is the attribute of the universal, that I have not much inclination to look for it in the local. Still, in this solar system as a whole there is considerable approximation to regularity or the mathematic is so nearly localized that eclipses for instance can with rather high approximation be foretold though i have notes that would deflate a little the astronomer's vainglory in this respect or would if that were possible an astronomer is poorly paid uncheered by crowds considerably isolated he lives upon his own inflations deflate a bear, and it couldn't hibernate. This solar system is like every other phenomenon that can be regarded as a whole, or the affairs of a ward are interfered with by the affairs of the city of which it is a part, city by county, county by state, state by nation, nation by other nations, all nations by climatic conditions, climatic conditions by solar circumstances, Sun by general planetary circumstances, solar system as a whole by other solar systems. So the hopelessness of finding the phenomena of entirety in the ward of a city. But positivists are those who try to find the unrelated in the ward of a city. In our acceptance, this is the spirit of cosmic religion. Objectively, the state is not realizable in the ward of a city. But, if a positivist could bring himself to absolute belief that he had found it, that would be a subjective realisation of that which is unrealisable objectively. Of course, we do not draw a positive line between the objective and the subjective, or that all phenomena called things or persons are subjective within one all-inclusive nexus, and that thoughts within those that are commonly called persons are subsubjective. It is rather as if intermediateness drove for regularity in this solar system and failed, then generated the mentality of astronomers, and, in that secondary expression, strove for conviction that failure had been success. I have tabulated all the data of this book, and a great deal besides card system, and several proximities, thus emphasised, have been revelations to me, Nevertheless, it is only the method of theologians and scientists, worst of all, of statisticians. For instance, by the statistic method, I could prove that a black rain has fallen regularly every seven months, somewhere upon this earth. To do this, I'd have to include red rains and yellow rains, but conventionally, I'd pick out the black particles in red substances and in yellow substances, and disregard the rest. Then, too, if here and there a black rain should be a week early, or a month late, that would be acceleration, or retardation. This is supposed to be legitimate in working out the periodicities of comets. 
if black rains, or red or yellow rains with black particles in them, should not appear at all near some dates. We have not read Darwin in vain. The records are not complete. As to other, interfering black rains, they'd be either grey or brown, or for them we'd find other periodicities. Still, I have had to notice the year 1819, for instance. I shall not note them all in this book, but I have records of 31 extraordinary events in 1883. Someone should write a book upon the phenomena of this one year, that is, if books should be written. 1849 is notable for extraordinary falls, so far apart that a local explanation seems inadequate. Not only the Black Rain of Ireland, May 1849, but a Red Rain in Sicily, and a Red Rain in Wales. Also, it is said, Tim's Yearbook, 1850-241, that, upon April 18th or 20th, 1849, shepherds near Mount Ararat found a substance that was not indigenous, upon areas measuring 8 to 10 miles in circumference. Presumably, it had fallen there. We have already gone into the subject of science and its attempted positiveness, and its resistances in that it must have relations of service. It is very easy to see that most of the theoretic science of the 19th century was only a relation of reaction against theologic dogma, and has no more to do with truth than has a wave that bounds back from a shore, or if a shop-girl, or you or I, should pull out a piece of chewing gum about a yard long, that would be quite as scientific a performance as was the stretching of this earth's age several hundred millions of years. All things are not things, but only relations or expressions of relations. But all relations are striving to be the unrelated, or have surrendered to, and subordinated to, higher attempts. So there is a positivist aspect to this reaction that is itself only a relation, and that is the attempt to assimilate all phenomena under the materialist explanation, or to formulate a final all-inclusive system upon the materialist basis. If this attempt could be realised, that would be the attaining of realness. But this attempt can be made only by disregarding psychic phenomena, for instance. Or if science shall eventually give in to the psychic, it would be no more legitimate to explain the immaterial in terms of the material than to explain the material in terms of the immaterial. Our own acceptance is that material and immaterial are of a oneness, merging, for instance, in a thought that is continuous with a physical action, that oneness cannot be explained, because the process of explaining is the interpreting of something in terms of something else. All explanation is assimilation of something in terms of something else that has been taken as a basis. But, in continuity, there is nothing that is any more basic than anything else, unless we think that delusion built upon delusion is less real than its pseudo-foundation. In 1829, Tim's Yearbook, 1848-235, in Persia fell a substance that the people said they had never seen before. As to what it was, they had not a notion, but they saw that the sheep ate it. They ground it into flour and made bread, 
said to have been passable enough, though insipid. That was a chance that science did not neglect. Manner was placed upon a reasonable basis, or was assimilated and reconciled with the system that had ousted the older, and less nearly real, system. It was said that, likely enough, manner had fallen in ancient times, because it was still falling, but that there was no tutelary influence behind it, that it was a lichen from the steppes of Asia Minor, from one place in a whirlwind and down in another place. In the American Almanac, 1833-71, it is said that this substance, to the inhabitants of the region, was immediately recognised by scientists who examined it, and that the chemical analysis also identified it as a lichen. This was back in the days when chemical analysis was a god. Since then, his devotees have been shocked and disillusioned. Just how a chemical analysis could so botanise, I don't know. But it was chemical analysis who spoke, and spoke dogmatically. It seems to me that the ignorance of inhabitants, contrasting with the local knowledge of foreign scientists, is overdone. If there's anything good to eat, within any distance conveniently covered by a whirlwind, inhabitants know it. I have data of other falls, in Persia and Asiatic Turkey, of edible substances. They are all dogmatically said to be manna, and manna is dogmatically said to be a species of lichens from the steppes of Asia Minor. The position that I take is that this explanation was evolved in ignorance of the fall of vegetable substances, or edible substances, in other parts of the world, that it is the familiar attempt to explain the general in terms of the local, that if we shall have data of falls of vegetable substance in, say, Canada or India, they were not of lichens from the steppes of Asia Minor, that though all falls in Asiatic Turkey and Persia are sweepingly and conveniently called showers of manna, they have not been even all of the same substance. In one instance, the particles are said to have been seeds. Though in Comte Rondeau, the substance that fell in 1841 and 1846 is said to have been gelatinous, in the Bullsai Nat de Nucatel, it is said to have been of something, in lumps the size of a filbert, that had been ground into flour. That of this flour had been made bread, very attractive looking, but flavourless. The great difficulty is to explain segregation in these showers. But deep-sea fishes and occasional falls down to them of edible substances bags of grain, barrels of sugar, things that had not been whirled up from one part of the ocean bottom, in storms or submarine disturbances, and dropped somewhere else. I suppose one thinks, but grain in bags never has fallen. Object of Amherst, its covering like milled cloth. Or barrels of corn, lost from a vessel, would not sink. But a host of them, clashing together after a wreck, they burst open, the corn sinks or does when saturated, the barrel staves float longer. If there be not an overhead traffic in commodities similar to our own commodities carried over this earth's oceans, I'm not the deep-sea fish I think I am. 
I have no data other than the mere suggestion of the Amherst object of bags or barrels, but my notion is that bags and barrels from a wreck on one of this earth's oceans would, by the time they reach the bottom, no longer be recognisable as bags or barrels, that, if we can have data of the fall of fibrous material that may have been cloth or paper or wood, we shall be satisfactory and grotesque enough. Procroy Irish Acad, 1.379 In the year 1686, some workmen, who had been fetching water from a pond, seven German miles from Memel, on returning to their work after dinner, during which there had been a snowstorm, found the flat ground around the pond covered with a coal-black leafy mass, and a person who lived near said he had seen it fall like flakes with the snow. Some of these flake-like formations were as large as a table-top. The mass was damp and smelt disagreeably, like rotten seaweed, but when dried the smell went off. It tore fibrously, like paper. Classic explanation. Up from one place and down in another. But what went up from one place in a whirlwind? Of course, our intermediatist acceptance is that had this been the strangest substance conceivable, from the strangest other world that could be thought of, somewhere upon this earth there must be a substance similar to it, or from which it would, at least subjectively, or according to description, not be easily distinguishable. Or that everything in New York City is only another degree or aspect of something, or combination of things, in a village of Central Africa. The novel is a challenge to vulgarization. Write something that looks new to you. Someone will point out that the thrice-accursed Greeks said it long ago. Existence is appetite, the gnaw of being, the one attempt of all things to assimilate all other things if they have not surrendered and submitted to some higher attempt. It was cosmic that these scientists, who had surrendered to and submitted to the scientific system, should, consistently with the principles of that system, attempt to assimilate the substance that fell at Memel with some known terrestrial product. At the meeting of the Royal Irish Academy, it was brought out that there is a substance, of rather rare occurrence, that has been known to form in thin sheets upon marsh land. It looks like greenish felt. The substance of memel. Damp, coal-black, leafy mass. But if broken up, the marsh substance is flake-like, and it tears fibrously. An elephant can be identified as a sunflower. Both have long stems. A camel is indistinguishable from a peanut, if only the humps be considered. Trouble with this book is that we'll end up a lot of intellectual roues. We'll be incapable of being astonished with anything. We knew to start with that science and imbecility are continuous. Nevertheless, so many expressions of the merging point are at first startling. We did think that Professor Hitchcock's performance in identifying the Amherst phenomenon as a fungus was rather notable as scientific vaudeville if we acquit him of the charge of seriousness, or that, in a place where fungi were so common that, 
before a given evening two of them sprang up, only he, a stranger in this very fungiferous place, knew a fungus when he saw something like a fungus, if we disregard its quick liquefaction, for instance. It was only a monologue, however. Now we have an all-star cast, and they're not only Irish, they're Royal Irish. The Royal Irishman excluded coal blackness and included fibrousness, so then that this substance was marsh paper, which had been raised into the air by storms of wind and had again fallen. Second act. It was said that according to Monsieur Ehrenberg, the meteor paper was found to consist partly of vegetable matter, chiefly of conifervae. Third act. Meeting of the Royal Irishman. Chairs, tables, Irishmen. Some flakes of marsh paper were exhibited. Their composition was chiefly of conifervae. This was a double inclusion, or it's the method of agreement that logicians make so much of. So no logician would be satisfied with identifying a peanut as a camel, because both have humps. He demands accessory agreement, that both can live a long time without water, for instance. Now it's not so very unreasonable, at least to the free and easy vaudeville standards that, throughout this book we are considering, to think that a green substance could be snatched up from one place in a whirlwind and fall as a black substance somewhere else. But the Royal Irishman excluded something else, and it is a datum that was as accessible to them as it is to me, that according to Schladny, this was no little local deposition that was seen to occur by some indefinite person living near a pond somewhere. It was a tremendous fall from a vast sky area. Likely enough, all the marsh paper in the world could not have supplied it. At the same time, this substance was falling in great quantities in Norway and Pomerania, or see Kirkwood, Meteoric Astronomy, page 66, Substance like charred paper fell in Norway and other parts of northern Europe, January 31st, 1686. Or a whirlwind, with a distribution as wide as that, would not acceptably, I should say, have so specialised in the rare substance called marsh paper. There had been falls of fence rails, roofs of houses, parts of trees... Nothing is said of the occurrence of a tornado in northern Europe in January 1686. There is record only of this one substance having fallen in various places. Time went on, but the conventional determination to exclude data of all falls to this earth, except of substances of this earth, and of ordinary meteoric matter, strengthened. Annals of Philosophy, 16. 68. The substance that fell in January 1686 is described as a mass of black leaves having the appearance of burnt paper, but harder and cohering and brittle. Marsh paper is not mentioned, and there is nothing said of the conifervae, which seems so convincing to the royal Irishman. Vegetable composition is disregarded, quite as it might be, by someone who might find it convenient to identify a crook-necked squash as a big fish-hook. 
meteorites are usually covered with a black crust, more or less scare-like. The substance of 1686 is black and scare-like. If so be convenience, leaf-likeness is scare-likeness. In this attempt to assimilate with the conventional, we are told that the substance is a mineral mass, that it is like the black scales that cover meteorites. The scientist who made this identification was von Grothus. He had appealed to the god chemical analysis, or the power and glory of mankind, with which we're not always so impressed, but the gods must tell us what we want them to tell us. We see again that, though nothing has identity of its own, anything can be identified as anything. Or there's nothing that's not reasonable if one snoopeth not into its exclusions. But here the conflict did not end. Berzelius examined the substance. He could not find nickel in it. At that time, the presence of nickel was the positive test of meteoritic matter. Whereupon, with a supposititious positive standard of judgment against him, von Grothus revoked his identification. Annals and Mag of Nathist, 1-3-185 This equalisation of eminences permits us to project with our own expression, which otherwise would be subdued into invisibility. That it's too bad that no one ever looked to see hieroglyphics, something written upon these sheets of paper? If we have no very great variety of substances that have fallen to this earth, if upon this earth's surface there is infinite variety of substances detachable by whirlwinds, two falls of such a rare substance as marsh paper would be remarkable. A writer in the Edinburgh Review, 87-194, says that at the time of writing he had before him a portion of a sheet of 200 square feet of a substance that had fallen in Carolath, Silesia, in 1839, exactly similar to cotton felt, of which clothing might have been made. The god microscopic examination had spoken. The substance consisted chiefly of conifervae. Jur Asiatic Sock of Bengal, 1847, Part 1, 193. That March 16, 1846, about the time of a fall of edible substance in Asia Minor, an olive-grey powder fell at Shanghai. Under the microscope it was seen to be an aggregation of hairs of two kinds, black ones and rather thick white ones. They were supposed to be mineral fibres, but when burned they gave out the common ammoniacal smell and smoke of burnt hair or feathers. The writer described the phenomenon as a cloud of 3,800 square miles of fibres, alkali and sand. In a postscript, he says that other investigators, with more powerful microscopes, gave opinion that the fibres were not hairs, that the substance consisted chiefly of conifervae, or the pathos of it, perhaps, or the dull and uninspired but courageous persistence of the scientific. Everything seemingly found out is doomed to be subverted, 
by more powerful microscopes and telescopes, by more refined, precise, searching means and methods, the new pronouncements irrepressibly bobbing up, their reception always as truth at last, always the illusion of the final, very little of the intermediatist spirit, that the new that has displaced the old will itself some day be displaced, that it too will be recognised as misstuff, but that if phantoms climb, spooks of ladders are good enough for them. Annual Register, 1821, 681. That according to a report by Monsieur Lainé, French consul at Pernambuco, early in October 1821, there was a shower of a substance resembling silk. The quantity was as tremendous as might be a whole cargo, lost somewhere between Jupiter and Mars, having drifted around perhaps for centuries, the original fabric slowly disintegrating. In Annal de Chemie, 2.15.427, it is said that samples of this substance were sent to France by M. Lainé, and that they proved to have some resemblances to silky filaments which, at certain times of the year, are carried by the wind near Paris. In the Annals of Philosophy, NS 1293, there is mention of a fibrous substance like blue silk that fell near Nuremberg, March 23, 1665. According to Schladny, Annal de Chimie, 231-264, the quantity was great. He places a question mark before the date. One of the advantages of intermediatism is that, in the oneness of quasiness, there can be no mixed metaphors. Whatever is acceptable of anything is, in some degree or aspect, acceptable of everything. So it is quite proper to speak, for instance, of something that is as firm as a rock, and that sails in a majestic march. The Irish are good monists. They have, of course, been laughed at for their keener perceptions. So it's a book we're writing, or it's a procession, or it's a museum, with the Chamber of Horrors rather overemphasized. A rather horrible correlation occurs in The Scientific American, 1859-178. What interests us is that a correspondent saw a silky substance fall from the sky. There was an aurora borealis at the time. He attributes the substance to the aurora. Since the time of Darwin, the classic explanation has been that all silky substances that fall from the sky are spiderwebs. In 1832, aboard the Beagle, at the mouth of La Plata River, 60 miles from land, Darwin saw an enormous number of spiders, of the kind usually known as gossamer spiders, little aeronauts that cast out filaments by which the wind carries them. It's difficult to express that silky substances that have fallen to this earth were not spiderwebs. My own acceptance is that spiderwebs are the merger, that there have been falls of an externally derived silky substance, and also of the webs, or strands, rather of aeronautic spiders indigenous to this earth, that in some instances it is impossible to distinguish one from the other. Of course, our expression upon silky substances will merge away into expressions upon other seeming textile substances, 
and I don't know how much better off we'll be, except that, if fabricable materials have fallen from the sky, simply to establish acceptance of that may be doing well enough in this book of first and tentative explorations. In All the Year Round, 8254, is described a fall that took place in England September 21st, 1741, in the towns of Bradley, Selborne, and Alsford, and in a triangular space included by these three towns. The substance is described as cobwebs, but it fell in flake formation, or in flakes or rags about one inch broad and five or six inches long. Also these flakes were of a relatively heavy substance. They fell with some velocity. The quantity was great. The shortest side of the triangular space is eight miles long. In the Wernerian Nathist Sock Trans 5386, it is said that there were two falls, that they were some hours apart, a datum that is becoming familiar to us, a datum that cannot be taken into the fold unless we find it repeated over and over and over again. It is said that the second fall lasted from nine o'clock in the morning until night. Now the hypnosis of the classic that what we call intelligence is only an expression of inequilibrium, that when mental adjustments are made, intelligence ceases, or, of course, that intelligence is the confession of ignorance. If you have intelligence upon any subject, that is something you're still learning, if we agree that that which is learned is always mechanically done, in quasi-terms, of course, because nothing is ever finally learned. It was decided that this substance was spider's webs. That was adjustment. But it's not adjustment to me. So I'm afraid I shall have some intelligence in this matter. If I ever arrive at adjustment upon this subject, then upon this subject I shall be able to have no thoughts except routine thoughts. I haven't yet quite decided absolutely everything, so I am able to point out that this substance was of quantity so enormous that it attracted wide attention when it came down, that it would have been equally noteworthy when it went up, that there is no record of anyone, in England or elsewhere, having seen tons of spider webs going up, September 1741. Further confession of intelligence upon my part, that if it be contested, then, that the place of origin may have been far away, but still terrestrial, then it's that other familiar matter of incredible marksmanship again, hitting a small triangular space for hours, interval of hours, then from nine in the morning until night, same small triangular space. These are the disregards of the classic explanation. There is no mention of spiders having been seen to fall, but a good inclusion is that, though this substance fell in good-sized flakes of considerable weight, it was viscous. In this respect, it was like cobwebs. Dogs nosing it on grass were blindfolded with it. This circumstance does strongly suggest cobwebs. Unless we can accept that, in regions aloft, there are vast viscous or gelatinous areas, 
and that things passing through become daubed. Or perhaps we clear up the confusion in the descriptions of the substance that fell in 1841 and 1846 in Asia Minor, described in one publication as gelatinous and in another as a cereal, that it was a cereal that had passed through a gelatinous region. That the paper-like substance of memel may have had such an experience may be indicated in that Ehrenberg found in it gelatinous matter, which he called nostoc, Annals and Mag of Nathist, 13-185, Scientific American, 45-337. Fall of a substance described as cobwebs, latter part of October 1881, in Milwaukee, Wis, and other towns. Other towns mentioned are Green Bay, Fesburge, Fort Howard, Sheboygan, and Ozorki. The aeronautic spiders are known as gossamer spiders because of the extreme lightness of the filaments that they cast out to the wind. Of the substance that fell in Wisconsin, it is said, in all instances, the webs were strong in texture and very white. The editor says, Curiously enough, there is no mention in any of the reports that we have seen of the presence of spiders. So our attempt to divorce a possible external product from its terrestrial merger, then our joy of the prospector who thinks he's found something. The Monthly Weather Review, 26566, quotes the Montgomery Aller Advertiser, that upon November 21st, 1898, numerous batches of spiderweb-like substance fell in Montgomery, in strands, and in occasional masses several inches long and several inches broad. According to the writer, it was not spider's web, but something like asbestos, also that it was phosphorescent. The editor of the review says that he sees no reason for doubting that these masses were cobwebs. La Nature, 1883-342. A correspondent writes that he sends a sample of a substance said to have fallen at Montusan, Gironde, October 16, 1883. According to a witness, quoted by the correspondent, a thick cloud, accompanied by rain and a violent wind, had appeared. This cloud was composed of a woolly substance in lumps the size of a fist, which fell to the ground. The editor, Tissandier, says of this substance that it was white, but was something that had been burned. It was fibrous. Monsieur Tissandier, astonishes us by saying that he cannot identify this substance. We thought that anything could be identified as anything. He can say only that the cloud in question must have been an extraordinary conglomeration. Annual Register, 1832, 447. That, March 1832, there fell, in the fields of Kurianov, Russia, a combustible yellowish substance covering at least two inches thick an area of six hundred or seven hundred square feet it was resinous and yellowish so one inclines to the conventional explanation that it was pollen from pine trees but when torn it had the tenacity of cotton when placed in water it had the consistency of resin this resin had the colour of amber was elastic, like India rubber, and smelled like prepared oil mixed with wax. So in general, our notion of cargoes, and our notion of cargoes of food supplies, 
in Philosophical Transactions, 1924, is an extract from a letter by Mr. Robert Vans of Kilkenny, Ireland, dated November 15, 1695, that there had been, of late, in the counties of Limerick and Tipperary, shares of a sort of matter like butter or grease, having a very stinking smell. There follows an extract from a letter by the Bishop of Cloyne upon a very odd phenomenon, which was observed in Munster and Leinster, that for a good part of the spring of 1695 there fell a substance which the country people called butter, soft, clammy, and of a dark yellow, that cattle fed indifferently in fields where this substance lay. It fell in lumps as big as the end of one's finger. It had a strong ill scent. His grace calls it a stinking dew. In Mr. Van's letter, it is said that the butter was supposed to have medicinal properties, and was gathered in pots and other vessels by some of the inhabitants of this place. And, in all the following volumes of philosophical transactions, there is no speculation upon this extraordinary subject. Ostracism. The fate of this datum is a good instance of damnation, not by denial, and not by explaining away, but by simple disregard. The fall is listed by Schladny, and is mentioned in other catalogues, but, from the absence of all inquiry, and of all but formal mention, we see that it has been under excommunication as much as was ever anything by the preceding system. The datum has been buried alive. It is as irreconcilable with the modern system of dogmas as ever were geologic strata and vermiform appendix with the preceding system. If, intermittently, or for a good part of the spring, this substance fell in two Irish provinces and nowhere else, we have, stronger than before, a sense of a stationary region overhead, or a region that receives products like this earth's products, but from external sources, a region in which this earth's gravitational and meteorological forces are relatively inert. If for many weeks a good part of this substance did hover before finally falling, we suppose that, in 1685, Mr. Vans and the Bishop of Cloyne could describe what they saw as well as could witnesses in 1885. Nevertheless, it is going far back. We shall have to have many modern instances before we can accept. As to other falls, or another fall, it is said in the Amer Jersey 128-361 that April 11th, 1832, about a month after the fall of the substance of Kurianov, fell a substance that was wine-yellow, transparent, soft, and smelling like rancid oil. Monsieur Hermann, a chemist who examined it, named it sky oil. For analysis and chemic reactions, see the journal. The Edinburgh New Philosophical Journal, 13368, mentions an unctuous substance that fell near Rotterdam in 1832. In Comte Rondoux, 13215, there is an account of an oily, reddish matter that fell at Genoa, February 1841. Whatever it may have been, 
Altogether, most of our difficulties are problems that we should leave to later developers of supergeography, I think. A discoverer of America should leave Long Island to someone else. If there be, plying back and forth from Jupiter and Mars and Venus, superconstructions that are sometimes wrecked, we think of fuel as well as cargoes. Of course, the most convincing data would be of coal falling from the sky. Nevertheless, one does suspect that oil-burning engines were discovered ages ago in more advanced worlds. But, as I say, we should leave something to our disciples, so we'll not especially wonder whether these butter-like or oily substances were food or fuel. So we merely note that in this Scientific American, 24323, is an account of hail that fell in the middle of April 1871 in Mississippi, in which was a substance described as turpentine. Something that tasted like orange water in hailstones about the 1st of June 1842 near Nîmes, France, identified as nitric acid, Jeux de Pharmacie, 1845-273, Hail and Ashes in Ireland, 1755, Cy Amer 5.168, that at Elizabeth N.J., June 9, 1874, fell hail in which was a substance said by Professor Leeds of Stevens Institute to be carbonate of soda, Cy Amer 30.262. We are getting a little away from the lines of our composition, but it will be an important point later that so many extraordinary falls have occurred with hail or, if they were of substances that had had origin upon some other part of this earth's surface, had the hell too that origin. Our acceptance here will depend upon the number of instances. Reasonably enough, some of the things that fall to this earth should coincide with falls of hell. As to vegetable substances in quantities so great as to suggest lost cargoes, we have a note in the Intellectual Observer, 3468, that upon the 1st of May 1863 a rain fell at Perpignan, bringing down with it a red substance which proved on examination to be a red meal mixed with fine sand. At various points along the Mediterranean this substance fell. There is, in Philosophical Transactions 16281, an account of a seeming cereal said to have fallen in Wiltshire in 1686, said that some of the wheat fell enclosed in hailstones, but the writer in Transactions says that he had examined the grains, and that they were nothing but seeds of ivy berries, dislodged from holes and chinks where birds had hidden them. If birds still hide ivy seeds, and if winds still blow, I don't see why the phenomenon has not repeated, in more than two hundred years since. Or the red matter in rain at Siena, Italy, May 1830, said by Arago to have been vegetable matter. Arago, oeuvre 12468. Somebody should collect data of falls at Siena alone. In the monthly weather review, 29465, a correspondent writes that, upon February 16, 1901, at Pawpaw, Michigan, upon a day that was so calm that his windmill did not run, fell a brown dust that looked like vegetable matter. 
the editor of the review concludes that this was no widespread fall from a tornado, because it had been reported from nowhere else. Rancidness, putridity, decomposition, a note that has been struck many times. In a positive sense, of course, nothing means anything, or every meaning is continuous with all other meanings, or that all evidences of guilt, for instance, are just as good evidences of innocence. But this condition seems to mean things lying around among the stars a long time, horrible disaster in the time of Julius Caesar, remains from it not reaching this earth till the time of the Bishop of Cloyne, we leave to later research the discussion of bacterial action and decomposition, and whether bacteria could survive in what we call space, of which we know nothing. Chemical News, 35-183 Dr. A. T. Machety, F.C.S., writes that, at London, Ontario, February 24, 1868, in a violent storm, fell, with snow, a dark-coloured substance, estimated at 500 tons, over a belt 50 miles by 10 miles. It was examined under a microscope by Dr. Manchetti, who found it to consist mainly of vegetable matter, far advanced in decomposition. The substance was examined by Dr. James Adams of Glasgow, who gave his opinion that it was the remains of cereals. Dr. Manchetti points out that for months before this fall the ground of Canada had been frozen, so that in this case a more than ordinarily remote origin has to be thought of. Dr. Manchetti thinks of origin to the south. However, he says, this is mere conjecture. Amer Jersey, 1841-40 That, March 24, 1840, during a thunderstorm at Rajkit, India, occurred a fall of grain. It was reported by Colonel Sykes of the British Association. The natives were greatly excited, because it was green of a kind unknown to them. Usually comes forward a scientist, who knows more of the things that natives know best than the natives know. But it so happens that the usual thing was not done definitely in this instance. The green was shown to some botanists, who did not immediately recognise it, but thought it to be either a spartium or a vicia. End of chapter 5